Welcome to the Rise Network Podcast Show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and and Mayu, what's going on, everyone? Austin, what have you been up yes. to, man? What have I been up to? This is the question I've been dreading. Uh, I'm not too sure, actually. Let me let me think. I've uh, I sold my flip, my Toronto flip, so that's a W, but it's an L in the sense that I've definitely lost a good chunk of change. <laughs> uh, closing is January 16th, 2024. Now we know how things go. Closing could potentially be extended. I'm hoping not. I'm hoping everything goes smooth, but I spoke with the owner of the house because their VTB technically expires on January 15th. Me and him have a pretty good rapport. So we're able to sort that out. He's not going to like kill me after for just one extra day. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that I was prepping him like leading up to that. I was like, Hey, look, I might need an extension. And we're just talking through it. And uh, we're talking about the end of May. Right now I'm at 3.2%. He would be willing to go at 5.2% if we needed the extension at the end of May. So still pretty good. But yeah. I had to negotiate that. He he wanted like seven percent, and then I was like, I was like, look, like honestly, I'm in no position to negotiate with you. Like I'll take what I can get, but like you know the situation that I'm in. Like I'm losing X amount of dollars. Look, I'm fine taking whatever you want to give me. But like I just if 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 you if you have any leniency, and <laughs> if you have any leniency whatsoever, like cheaper the better for me, right? So then I guess he found it in his heart. Yeah, you just begged him for it, eh? <laughs> no, not really, man. Like, it was like, I knew that I had no position to negotiate. And I was like, let me, like, try to hit on the guy's morals and his his values and <laughs> ethics, right? I was like, look, like, I can't do anything, but, like, I'm losing this much money. So if you can do anything for me, I'll take it. But yeah. if you can't, like, I'll just roll with the punches. And then he, yeah, <laughs> we got we got it done. But anyways, hopefully it doesn't come to that anyways, because we got we got the property sold. Not bad. How much did it sell for? That's public information. You can share that, right? Yeah, yeah. So it sold for 950000 Not bad. Pretty good deal for the person who picked it up, man. Less than a mil. Not bad for you either. Like, a, that's okay. It's a little bit of a lot. Whatever. We'll talk about it later. We can't talk about it until everything Yeah, is- I, want, I want it to close. You know how it goes, yeah, man. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. transactions sell sometimes and don't close. I'm hopeful that it closes because there was an inspection and a financing condition. They both got waived. So I would assume that the person did whatever due diligence. Oh, another thing, another thing that I've been up to this week. I forgot. This was a big one, dude. So the hot water stopped working in that flip. That was one of the things that they wanted me to fix. They're like, oh, go get the hot water back on. It's a rental tank. So no issue. Yeah. I do, Can I name the name? No, I'm not going to name the name of who I'm renting it from. I don't know if there's lawsuits and shit like that. Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. The company, basically, I was like, dude, I live very far away from this flip. It's yeah. vacant. So give me an advance notice on, on when you're going to get there. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to come down anyway. So I came down at 8 a.m., right? I went to a coffee shop nearby to work and I called them like three times. I'm like, yo, give me a 20 minute notice. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Every time. Yeah. <laughs> and then I called them at 1130 a.m. I was like, dude, no one called me. They're like, someone came at 1020. I was like, are you fucking kidding me, dude? I was like, no one called me. They're like, yeah, they said the house is vacant. I was like, dude. Someone was supposed to call me and when he was there, why didn't he just call me and be like, where are you? You know, so ended up wasting an entire day there. And they were not, you know, with these companies, they have you by the fucking balls, dude. You cannot do anything. They're like, all we can do is reschedule. And I was like, no matter how much I was trying to fight and negotiate, they literally have you by the balls. So they rescheduled for today. Okay. And I was like, the only one thing that they gave me is the exact timing. So usually they give you a four hour range. They gave me 1 p.m., right? <laughs> they, they didn't show up at 1 p.m. <laughs> they didn't show up. They called me at 2.30 and they're like, we're at the house. I'm like, oh, fuck you guys. <laughs> uh, but that that was a time waste for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. Even like, you know, like power connection turn-ons and Bell Wi-Fi appointments and fucking all that stupid shit. Think about like what property managers have to deal with sometimes. Eh? Kind of makes you feel bad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but what's going on in your end man enough uh, bantering for me yeah I, I don't know if i told you this i was looking at a house in scarborough 
I'm actually going to check out how much it sold for. I'm fucking curious now. Oh, it's the one with multiple offers, right? Like there was an offer presentation date. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I should tell you, it was listed at 800K right down the road from uh, a property that I own, or like the, the, my Scarborough house. Okay. My Scarborough house, we refinanced. Um, it was a two bedroom upper. We made it to three bedrooms, added a three bedroom basement, refinanced at eight something in 2019. Okay. Listed at 800. They had two units in the basement, which is illegal as fuck, right? Um, yeah. But it is what it is. Um, and you know what the fuck? Shit didn't sell. What the fuck? They probably didn't get what they wanted. <laughs> I think they didn't. I, I feel like they didn't update the listing because there's no way it didn't sell. So it was listed at 800 game. And I was like, yo, perfect. Like, yeah, it needs like PLC. It needs paint. Yeah. It needs cosmetic work. That's ugly as fuck. But there's a kitchen. There's a bathroom. I don't have to like structurally really do much, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm like, cool. Like, let me come in here and like at 800 K that's 2019 pricing. I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy at that price. Yeah. And so like, I mean, think I'm some genius. I would like, call the guy, I get my realtor to call him. I go set up an appointment. They were like, they were so cocky that they just didn't even want us to have the appointment. They were like, honestly, we had 106 showings. Today's the guy's birthday. Offer day's tomorrow. Like, what's the point? 106 showings? Showings. Yeah. 106 showings. They're like, we're anticipating like 10, uh, offers. I'm like, that's a pretty bad ratio though. <laughs> whatever Talk i was just like bro like I, yeah I'm not, I'm not really trying to trying to compete in a bidding war right so I just yeah like, like move on to the next one right? i had an offer accepted in markham i think we talked about it on the podcast before i can't remember if he did it or if he did it we brief details he didn't mention where it was or anything so just high level why don't you give us an idea yeah i'll give it i, I don't want to ruin the guy's chance of selling it so i'm not going to give the property but basically uh <laughs> i guess someone can just find it if they want to but whatever uh, very close to a public transit, transit like station, like pretty popular, Metrolinx, GoTrain, that kind of thing. Listed, uh, let's just say I, I got under contact at million fifty. It was a single family house and it's on a double lot. So the lot dimensions, it's kind of like a trapezoid type thing. Like it's a triangle yeah. or like in the back, it's like not really a triangle, right? <laughs> uh, so anyways, it was 149 lot uh, by 80 irregular spot, right? So total square footage for the lot is about like 8,000 square feet. That kind of gives you an idea. But because it's 149 frontage, uh, you could in theory sever the lot, uh, which the guy had previously done an application for in 2018 to sever and build two semis, which was uh, approved by the city. Everything was good. He just didn't move forward with it, didn't do the permits and stuff like that. So that was 2018. So you're thinking, okay, 2018. And this is what the realtor had to advertise as. You can put two semis on here. No one's going to put two semis in Markham right in front of a, a public transit line, like a, a train line, right? Like no one wants to do that shit. So this property was sitting. So I, I looked up zoning and I'm like, shit, okay, so it's R3 zoning, which technically allows for multiple dwellings and buildable uh, height of, I think it was 40 feet, which works out to about four feet, uh, four floors, plus a little bit of like above ground basement, right? And multiple dwellings, R3 zoning in Markham allows for technically up to 100 unit apartments. No one's going to put 100 unit apartments on that small ass lot. So I'm like, shit, okay, I'm going to sever this thing. I'm going to put two eightplexes on here. My cost of acquisition for the line is 500K per lot. That's not really, like, that's good. It was decent. It was a great deal if, if that worked out. But it was also the fact that the house was tucked away on one corner of the lot. So I didn't actually have to demolish the house, which in construction, your biggest risk period is where the house is gone because now you're at land value. And so the value significantly dropped, right? So all this shit being said, went through due diligence. Uh, we had a VTB agreed on. It was pretty small, like 15% or so. And then we had a, a closing and all that kind of stuff in place. And then... Talked to Metrolinx. Metrolinx was all good on, on the build side. Talked to a planner, talked to uh, an architect, talked to a developer. Uh, development costs were, were basically, you're going to look at about like $2 million to 1.7. The planner is really the one that shut it down. He's like, look, I know technically the zoning says this, but this is actually, it's within a heritage zoned area. So it's not a heritage, mm -hmm. but it's in a heritage zoned area. Heritage zoning is different from the normal city of market zoning. I was like, fuck, okay, yeah, you're right. Heritage zoning R3 definition is basically only a fourplex is allowed, right? Ah, uh, okay. And that's yeah. technically not like multiple dwellings. So you would have to sever it. Because part of my logic was if multiple dwellings are allowed on one lot, you don't actually have to sever it. You can just keep mm -hmm. it one lot and two buildings on it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, in this case, I would have to sever it. And then I would have to build two fourplexes, which in theory, you still, because like my worst case when I was looking at this, okay, forget the severance. If I can just put one eightplex, I'm still happy. My cost of land was $1 million. My build cost would be $2 million. All in $3 million, eight plus in Markham, right across public transit. It's solid. <laughs> but in this case, it was two fourplexes, which still works out to $8 million, eight, eight units total. But to build the two fourplexes is going to cost you basically double your construction cost. So I was looking at being all in 
$4 million plus my land, $1 million, so $5 million all in for eight units. Puts it at like just over 500K a unit, which is like- that, That's getting up there though. That is getting mid. up there. Like it's mid, like it's, it's not a crazy, yeah. like I have to do this. It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. right? For the risk, it, it might not make sense. Yeah, no, fair yeah. enough. Seller still wants to work something out. I'm like, man, like it, it's, it's not like price. It's just like, what am I going to do with like, even if you sold me this house for like 900K, what am I going to do with it? Is it? I don't know. Maybe there's something. But it just goes to show that there's unique opportunities out there, right? Like just to wrap it up before we, we jump into the yeah. podcast, there are sellers that are willing to negotiate even on single family houses or, or VTBs and all of these creative things. So like just shoot your shot out there in the market right now as it's slowing down, because when things pick back up, whatever that may be, you're not going to have these opportunities anymore. Everything is going to be back to the seller's terms. But anyways, let's jump into today's podcast episode. We have Andrew Chubetta from Caveat LLP. He's a paralegal expert down in the Hamilton region, but of course he services clients far and across Hamilton. He specializes in LTB issues. So this podcast episode is going to be all about the LTBs, both the problems with it, how you can work around it, how to negotiate with tenants, what best practices are for landlords, understanding the LTB laws and how to maneuver around it. So I think that this is probably one of the most quintessential topics that real estate investors should know, but there's not many resources out there talking about it. So you guys must listen to this episode. You're definitely going to get key nuggets out of it. If you guys enjoyed the podcast as well, share, like, subscribe, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and let's jump right on in. Just a heads up before we get started, this podcast is all about providing you information, not financial or legal advice. So if you need the real deal for your situation, hit up a professional. We can't promise you our information is always up to date or accurate, and we're not responsible for any investment decisions you make based on it. Market change, information change, you know the drill. Anyways, thank you for hanging out with us responsibly. Let's jump right on in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Andrew Trubetta. Andrew, how's everything going, man? I'm good, guys. How you doing? Doing good, Andrew. I feel like we only met oh, no, like a couple months ago, but I feel like we've had a bunch of yeah. phone calls since. Uh, just always yeah. an interesting guy. But for anyone that might not know you, why don't you give everyone a quick rundown on yourself, background, the investor side, and also more importantly, what you kind of deal with on the legal side. Yeah. So I'm an investor, I'm based out of uh, Hamilton, Ontario. And then uh, I primarily work in landlord tenant board issues with that's anything between non-payment of rents, drugs, guns, problem tenants, you know, professional tenants, um, AGIs, you know, a lot of real estate focused stuff. So, you know, people not leaving when that property sold and then, uh, you know, renovations and that type of thing as well. So the smorgasbord of, of issues with tenants when it sort of happens. So I, I deal with all that, but I also have my own portfolio as well. Nice. I feel like while the real estate market is slowly going sideways and down, your business is probably going up because there's <laughs> probably a host of tenant issues now. <laughs> yeah. Like, like this is a thing. It's, you know, it, you're trying to like catch the wave type of thing. And it is an industry right now that's, you know, for, like I have to say, unfortunately booming. Like I see, like, you know, see that laws. They hate stagnation. When things get bad, law firms make a lot of money. When things go great, law firms make a lot of money. But things staying the same, they don't really do that well. And being inside the landlord tenant board field right now, I'm too busy. That's one thing I had to learn. Me being as a business owner was actually scaling uh, you know, an office and how to do that. Because when I first started practicing years ago, you would do two or three matters a month, which was great. Like it was, a, it's a good paying job. It's fantastic. And then I opened my own office. And then ended up connecting with my two partners, Angela Smith and, and Glenn Gosling. And our office grew and grew and grew. And then when COVID hit, it, it grew and it still kept growing. And then, you know, this month we've surpassed our previous months of cases that we've taken on. It's, it's always a blessing, right? But at the same time, people don't call us for good reasons, right? Usually when they, when they pick up the phone and, and reach out to us because they're having the worst day in their life with their tenant, right? So you're always cognizant of that. So Although it's going great, it's it's always a, an issue. We are seeing the trend right now where things are just increasing and, and things are getting worse and worse. Yeah, so so I think the entire purpose, having you on, and I, obviously we would love to talk, just chat with you, but we're hearing this more and more and the market is obviously increasing delinquencies. 
while we haven't really seen it in like mortgage foreclosures and stuff like that, that's kind of like stayed about the same as pre-COVID. You're hearing more and more like tenants not paying rent, tenants being aware of their rights and so on. So I'd just be curious to hear, like, what are you dealing with on, on, a, on a daily basis? Like if you were to pinpoint the top three types of like issues that you're dealing with in today's market on the legal side, what would that look like? Like the biggest number one thing is not payment of rent. I guess that'll always be king. But right now it's getting worse more than usual because yeah. we're seeing you know, the interest rates increasing, cost of living is going up, inflation is going up, the homeless camps near my office are growing. So it's, it's everything is just cascading down. So the N4 of non-payment rate is king. Like it's always going to be the biggest amount of files that any office carries. And I'm pretty big proponent that if you're an investor, you should be able to know how to do an N4 for non-payment of rent and handle it if it goes to the board. Like that's an application that as, as much as I'm, I'm happy to handle matters like that, I, I do have issue with investors calling us repeatedly for N4s. You know, after the first one, if you own six properties, you have an N4, like we'll do it for you once, but the second time you need to know how to do it yourself. Like that's not something you should be hiring a practitioner for. But the other things, like the second and third things is, is actually um, like landlord move-in, like N12s. Those have right. increased by 77%. I, I saw a, an article online, but they've drastically increased along with sales because everyone's selling their investment, right? These duplex, triplexes, single families, that kind of thing. They're all being sold. And any tenant that's not a property is going to get an N12 once yeah. the sale's going through because the person that's likely buying it is not an investor. It's going to be someone moving in. So there's, a, there's just a ton of those these days, just this nonstop. And how much of those would you think is like bullshit? Like realistically speaking. Yeah, realistically, <laughs> a lot of them. A lot of them. I would say like, but this is the thing. Like that's, that's where my, like, my blinders come up because I only, I only involve when things go wrong, right? 90% okay. of tenants leave once they, they know the property being sold. But that, 10% that stay. That's a, that's a huge amount of people. 10% is massive, right? It's not Ontario. And out of that 10%, how many of those, notice, those uh, notices are full? I know what tenant advocates would say, probably say a lot of them, but the reality of it is, is that the, the reason why there's so much like a bull when it comes to the N12 is because there's no way of ending a tenancy in Ontario, really. You have to have a reason. You can't just say, I don't want to rent my property. Like, I'm fine paying the vacant home tax, I just don't want anyone living in it. I want the asset. I don't want anyone living. In it. There's okay, no yeah. way of do, dealing with that. There's no way of just ending the tenancy in total. Just if you wanted to increase rent. Right. And it's like, that doesn't really make sense. Like, and then that kind of, you know, I know New York and so it's a political position that some people have and it's fine. Like yeah. if you believe in rent control, that's okay. Like, that's okay. That's fine. Do you want to believe in that? It's not something I prescribe to, but there's people that do, but you start to see these issues with these large multifam places in, uh, I was just speaking with, uh, with Austin about this today. It's like inside New York, right? Where you have all these units and, the, and 12, 30, 40 units and the landlords are leaving and dilapidated estate because they likely don't have the investment capital to completely refurbish it. And there's no incentive for them to do it in the first place. So yeah. they'll keep things directly at board. And we see that here, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the same thing. It's like, if you're, if you're talking about big companies, yeah, like they have more honesty to deal, deal with like issues, but smaller landlords they're doing the n12 because they likely have a reason it's just doesn't work with the way the rt is currently drafted right Right. it's that's a big moral and legal thing that people go and get into fights with about all the time like to me and i come from like a an east african nationality and like 90 percent of the planet if you own a house it's your house you get to do what you want with it if you don't want someone in it they can't be there that's it. Like my dad to this day has no clue what I do. Like he doesn't yeah. understand it. He's just like, well, what do you mean they didn't pay rent? Okay. Why don't you just go get the police? They'll come and they'll take him out. Like, no, you can't do that. You got to go to court. Well, how long does that take? Well, like 12 months sometimes. 12 months? What do you mean 12 months? You can't just go and take them out? No, you can't. You're not allowed to do that. Right. And it's like, it's that type of thing, right? In Alberta, like, you know, Alberta does, has different tennis laws. Why do you think we ended up here? Because this is now just like a philosophical conversation here. But why do you think we ended up in the scenario of needing rent control? I'm just curious your thoughts are. It's funny. And I, cause this is the thing, 90% of people, if you talk to someone on the street and they're like, if you didn't pay a rent, how long should it be till you get evicted? Most people say like two or three months, right? Reasonably, right? If there's, some, there's a dispute, it should be like a week afterwards. The reason why I got this bad is because suffice it to say, and I know I'm going to say people get mad, but investors are lazy when it comes to the law. They're terrible at dealing with it. 
they don't go to these functions because they don't want to go to the political side of things. They stay on the side that makes them money, right? The personal side. But what they should be doing right. is going to like, like the, you know, Acorn, which is the tenant action group. They're fantastic when it comes to prioritizing Queens Park. Fantastic when it comes to, you know, going out and, and making sure their voice is heard. But these investor meetings, these meetups and that kind of things, they never seem to invite the politicians, this, that. They never do, right? And these guys get, they get very annoyed dealing with these tenant rights advocates. So what do they do? Their constituents comes and tells them something to do it. And then the investors sit down and they just go, well, how did this happen? It's like, well, you know, the, you know who does understand that? The massive landlords, the big ones, you're 7,000 units, 40,000 units, a million, like those people, they're inside that club and they're playing that game because they know where it will net them, right? So it's, it's just the nature of it. Like when it comes to these types of things, it got this bad because of that. Like it's just, you know, people that could have talked about it didn't, right? The small landlord didn't, didn't care about it for a while, but now they do because they're being basically screwed. I want to pull things back a little bit. We got pretty deep into the conversation, <laughs> which I'm, I'm loving by the way, yeah, yeah. but there are, as you mentioned, a lot of investors don't even understand the basics of the uh, residential tenancy act, the LTB and how all of that functions. So one thing that you've mentioned is, is that one of the valid ways to get a tenant out is serving an N12, meaning that you're moving in or the person buying it's moving in or a direct family members moving in legitimately, right? Mm. Legitimately moving in. So just to explain, because I get this question a lot and I'm sure some of our listeners don't know as well. What is like a contract lease? What is month to month? Is there any like material differences between that? Can you evict a tenant if they're month to month? Would you be able to outline some of the, the high level basics around that? Yeah. So high level basics. Let's talk about, so you're on 12. Let's just use that as an example for right now. So in my opinion, there's no reason to have your tenant on a year lease in Ontario, unless your property is very expensive. So you've got like massive fees. You're logging about like $5,000 uh, a month, that kind of thing. Then you would have a year lease. But if you're anywhere between 4,000 under than that, you're month to month. Keep it a month to month. Don't change that. Only sign for month to month. That's it. The reason why is because if you want to, if you need to do an N12 and N13, et cetera, you can do so at any point in time. You don't have to wait till the end of the lease term because that's what will happen. If you have to wait until the end of the lease term, it could be a very large problem for you, right? So, you know, that's the first thing to sort of consider. In addition to that, you're going to want to, you know, like, and this is a, a overarching thing. I would say consult with a, a representation or consult with an investor if you're for a friend or, or whatever it may be, just so you can have that knowledge. But on a high level, it's going to be a, a, a situation where, you know, you kind of want to bifurcate a lot of your leases. So what I mean by that is if you own multiple properties, let's say four five, six, you don't want all your leasing starting all on the same days. You want like if you're leasing multiple out in all in the same period, you want to keep them spread out. So if you're having issues with turnover, you're not going to see all these things all at once. And then keep up the up to date with your maintenance. So you're not really getting those T5s and T6s and T2s, et cetera, et cetera. So you can just kind of stay away from that type of thing. Uh, but in a whole, on like a 5,000 foot level, like people should know how to do some of the basic applications. Like I don't play hockey, so I don't know what the offside rule is. If I did, I would. Right. So every landlord should know the RTA, should know where the changes are, should know all that kind of stuff. And the basic one, like I said in the beginning, the N4 for non-payment of rent. There is no reason to hire a paralegal for an N4. There is yeah. not. Right. But I still do it because it's business. And I have clients that don't want to like, you know, excuse my language, don't want to fuck it up. Right. And they and they're dealing with a lot of money. If you get to the it takes 12 months to get to the hearing. So a lot of the time I get hired, it's just because they don't want any issues. Like, what's the end? They just don't want to deal with it and they hopefully never will be there again. Right. Mm -hmm. But what I tell everyone is like, you know, even if I'm doing it for you, you're going to pay attention to how I'm doing it. You're going to watch me do it. And then you're going to be at the hearing as well. So next time, you know, I don't have to do this again. Right. right. So you should be hiring a practitioner for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So one thing about the N4, and I guess a lot of the other major applications is, is that you don't have to do it on pen and paper anymore. Right. They made yeah. it easier through an online portals. I did my first one recently, my first N4, because what, I was just ever N4. Well, the property manager has done it before, right? For me. So I filed my first N4 alone and then also did the L1 filing as well. So did both of those. 
And I just did that online through the portal. Sorry, the N4, you have to do pen and paper. The L1, you don't have to do pen and paper. You can do that through the portal. So I submitted everything. I saved a ton in in fees, as you mentioned. I've gotten my... Here's a question for you. So I know you mentioned 12 months. I've gotten my hearing in five months. So have you noticed any sort of progress or is it all based on each particular city as well? Because I filed last week and I have a hearing in April. That's a good question. Okay. And I'll make this clear because I, I get that question a lot. You, since you had that experience, you are now like, you have a different idea of what's actually happened, right? So people will look at their singular experience and they'll go, oh, this is what's happening. now as a trend. That's not the case. So you filed an N4, which now you'll get a hearing date pretty quick when it comes to knowing what the date is. So the board has done all these changes for an automated system. You know, they're even doing invites. Now I can schedule my own hearings for clients, that type of thing. Most people are having that experience with the N4 application only, not the N5, N12, N13, nothing else, just the N4. You will get a hearing day allocation within a week, two weeks, three weeks. The furthest I've ever waited is two months and I've got, okay? And you're I'll also not have to consider if you're filing right now, because we're I'm just going to date us, it's November 21st right now. If you're inside December, it's going to take longer because you're going to the holiday season, right? right? So you may not get the automated thing. For every other application, they tend to come, you know, uh, within certain things. So at N12, you're going to see six to eight months. And then, so you're, you're likely going to get an A, like right now they're booking for April, May, June. I'm getting hearing dates in June for my L2s. That's it, right? I filed one inside May of this year and I just had the hearing date inside April of next year. The L2. Ridiculous. Right? And this is the thing. I have other matters that I filed in January. I have one in January that I filed for, uh, it's on Finch Road in Toronto. I have yet to receive it. That's in January. Yeah, just myself. I have 300 and something. Like our, our office is about 300 matters, right? That's all that are active through our portal. There are some that we have filed multiple months ago that we have received no hearing date. So it is not congruent. So that's why whenever I see people talk about it online, like six to eight months, 11 months, 12 months, anyone that says that and they're firm about it is either a liar or a fool. There are so many outliers popping up over and over again where I just don't trust it. It's not a large percentage, but it's like that five or 6%. But if you take, you know, 60,000 applications and you cut it down to five or 6%, that's a big percentage, right? And to that one person who has one application to their one thing, they are not going to care at all that you said 68 months and that it's waiting 12, 13, 14, 20. Like they're not going to care because you know, that's their one matter. And they are just the outlier themselves and they've never dealt with this before. So it just happened to them. So that's why I try to tell people just keep understanding and try to keep things realistic when it comes to this type of stuff. Because the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how long your hearing date will be. And I answer this question every single day, 365. I did an N4 for a lovely family inside Brantford. Uh, the tenant there is a nightmare. She actually accused me of entering her house and stealing the cat. And it, it was a whole thing in the, okay, oh yeah, the police were called, police contacted me off. It was a whole thing. I explained like, no, 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 I was in court that day. No idea what you're talking about, the whole thing. And her hearing, was, it was filed in January of 2023. Her hearing was inside November of last year. That's last year. It was adjourned in November. We're still waiting for the hearing date. We just got the hearing date two days ago. It's going to be inside January. Wow. So this lady's waited more than 15 months. That's right. an N4. Not even a, that's an, that's an N4. Oh, yeah. It's an N4. And it's because, and this is the thing, before with the system, the adjourned matters would come up in three or four months. You're now adjourned mattered. If your matter is adjourned, you're waiting eight months now. It's like starting from the beginning. So with your N4, you're back at the beginning. You're waiting at, you know, so it's, it hasn't gotten better. So what's the solution? I guess all these issues aside, because timeline is something that we've, We've dealt with even back in, I think 2018 or 19, like I yeah. had like six month waits even back then. Obviously during COVID, it got worse. And now it seems like it's getting a little bit better, which really just means back to the status quo of, you know, five to six months, depending on if you're lucky or unlucky. Aside from all the issues, what are you seeing people do well? Because as investors, we still need to buy properties. Most of us still want to buy in Ontario as much as everyone's talking about the US and Alberta and stuff like that. Like I still want real estate in Ontario. So what's the solution? Is it take the vacant properties? Because me and Austin have had this conversation with other people, both on and off the podcast. The reality is tenants are well aware that if they were to vacate a property, 
they are likely going to pay significantly higher in about 90% of scenarios, the rent is going to be higher, right? So this is all over the media and, and you just have a lot more of an educated tenant base, right? So I'm just curious, like, what are you seeing people do well? Is there a solution? Is there something that people can do to kind of protect themselves? Yeah, just curious what you're seeing there. Just, and just to quickly add on to that, you said, my you mentioned things are getting better. Are things actually getting better or are they getting worse? Because there's mixed, there's mixed headlines. So yeah. why don't you so, answer that as well in the question? It's both. When it comes to if things are getting better, it's better in transparency and understanding where your matter is. The portal system that they placed out does do some things better. We know where the matter is in stages, if it's screened, if it's going for a hearing day, if the order's pending, all that kind of stuff. So it, yeah, for communication, it's better. Before, you would send it in and that was it. Yeah. You would just get a file number. I was like, and you know, everyone would just say, you know, uh, yeah, we're waiting for a hearing date and the board wouldn't answer you. You would email them, call them. They wouldn't give you a response. And it's sort of just like, you'll wait until you get it. And that was, <laughs> it was kind of it, right? But now you do have stages and all these other things. But when it comes to practically getting matters done, no, it's worse. It's worse. Like I've been practicing long enough. I've seen, like I've seen the earlier times. I've seen the, the middle times. And now, now it's, it's just really bad. It's not getting better. It's, I've, we're seeing consistently more wait times and it, things are getting worse and worse. But it's, it's not going to be a, a situation as of right now where things are going to get better anytime soon. So I'm down on record for this. Like you could hold me to it. Right. Like I, I get to arguments with my other colleagues about this nonstop. And there are other paralegals or and lawyers who you will talk to who may think different than me. I don't have a uh, like this is not the regular trend thing that I'm talking about. I'm just in the opinion that things aren't getting better and they're going to get worse because I don't see the government moving fast enough to fix this. That's what I think. And just to I add on to that, where there was an article, sorry to interrupt, but like yeah, just no, before we move on this point. There's an article that came out a few days ago. I think the uh, the tribunals Ontario published the annual report. And to your point, there's an increase in backlogs from 34,000 from March 31st, 2021 to almost 54,000 two years later as of yeah. March. That's almost a double of, of an increase. So to, to your yeah. point, the data also aligns directly like it. The backlogs are getting a lot worse yeah, over awesome. time. I'm busy. Like, I don't think you understand. Like, when I say I'm busy, I, I already have too many and I, I still have more. Like, I have to turn away clients, right? And what ends up happening is you see with paralegals, any good one is beyond difficult to get a hold of, beyond difficult to get a hold of because they're just swamped with all this work. And you, like you as a practitioner, you've got to say no to people crying. You got to say no to people that have lost everything, are going through bankruptcy, maybe being foreclosed. They have someone smoking crack in their house and they're living upstairs. I have someone throwing rocks at, uh, at someone's, a child's window, right? Like everything, all the worst of the worst you can think of, it's happening, right? And I will be honest, it's the 1%. These are people that are that 1% that are going to do this. 99.99% of people don't do these types of things. It's the small percentage of 1%. But 1% of a massive population is an incredible amount. And the right now, there are a lot of paralegals. There's not that many great paralegals practicing so significantly, right? So I, I hope that our, the market can shift and there'll be more paralegals coming in because I think people are just running away from it because what ends up happening is people flame out, right? They, they take on too much than they can chew. We have colleagues retiring every other day. I just keep saying, oh, you hear about her? Oh yeah, she's leaving. Yeah, yeah, she's done. Like she's not going. She's not going to continue. So like you're seeing that, right? The market is burning people out of the business, right? And and it's hard. It's hard for practitioners. It's difficult. It's also difficult managing how and client expectations on when your hearing date's going to come in, and it like all this stuff trickles down to us, and it comes to us, right? And the these situations that people are consistently having these problems over and over again. That's just like the the high level on the of things are going to get better basis, right? It's just. I just don't see it because I don't see my colleagues getting, seeing things better. I don't see my colleagues not leaving an industry. I don't see my colleagues not to calling me and saying, oh my God, holy crap, what the hell's going on? Yeah, I don't, I don't see that yet. Until that, mm -hmm. until that changes, my mentality is just going to be that. That's it. So you want to go into Mayu, Mayu, your question? I'm sorry for the interruption. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So then, sorry, what was my question? It was... Yes. Uh, there was the solution, the solution base. Oh, like the solution. For people who are looking to sell things vacant or buy, like buying properties and, and they want vacancies. What, like, what is the best approach to that? 
Yeah. Yeah. You just dump money into it. That's what it is. It's just, there's not enough clerks. There's not enough adjudicators. There's not enough staff. Right. I, I guess that's at a provincial level. I'm saying for like an investor that's coming oh. in, right. You're looking at buying real estate. What, like, what are you supposed to do? Do you just, is the reality just stick to vacant properties that you can no, use no, no. and like stuff like that? Is it, is cash or key still working? Um, no, the, the advice to that is very simple. Just people don't listen, especially investors. Don't put yourself in situations that you're going to lose your loan. Don't do dumb things, but people always do. Right. It's the reason I have a job. It's like, you can tell someone, don't buy that thing because you have no idea what's going on. Don't like seek legal advice before you buy something. 90% of the consultations I have are investors saying, Hey, I'm thinking about buying this property. I'll do a consultation. Don't even charge for something for that because I would rather have to deal with something in the beginning and turn you away from it than I would afterwards when it becomes a nightmare. But it's, it's, that's the thing. It's like people, they don't listen. They just like, they go into situations and then they're inside there. They put themselves with a rock and a hard place because the investor hustle mentality without look, they, you know, they'll, you know, jump before they, they, they look before you leap kind of thing. Right. They don't look right. And, and LTB now is the re- repercussions are so bad. And there's always like, what drives me insane is that there's always an investor that got away with it. Like this guy said, hey, I just did this. I did the N11 and they walked away. And it's like, I don't care. It's like, you're playing with a ball. Soon as something goes wrong, you will go f- get foreclosed on. You will go bankrupt. One tenant can ruin an entire portfolio of properties. And you're going to tell me that's not something to consult legal advice with. It's just like, it's the mentality. It's like everything can be fine until someone's in the bad and then it could be a problem. Right. So it's just like the, the dealing with tenants is not like in between. It's either zero or a hundred percent. Right. There's no, like, there's no uh, moderation on that gas pedal. Things, if things get bad on you, they can get really bad really fast all at once. And what people should tradition do is talk to a practitioner before they buy something. Right. See if they can negotiate the cash or keys before they actually purchase the property. See if they can come to an agreement with the tenant. Then not like the biggest thing with investors is that they're negotiators. That's what they pride themselves on. A lot of real estate agents do, but they won't negotiate with the tenant. They won't do it. Right. And it's like, and, but then I want to negotiate. I don't mean give them an offer for cash for keys. That's not what I said. Right. That's the settlement. That's not what I'm trying to do. Right. I don't sell sunshines and roses. A lot of practitioners and a lot of investors come to me when they have an ROI issue, right? They need to renovate, like renov- the standard renovation. If you look my name, it comes up a hundred times because I deal with that like, quite a significant amount. But I don't teach people or sell people things that don't exist, right? When a tenant, I talk to a tenant, I tell them exactly what's going to happen and I give them options and I work with them, right? And then I go back to the investor and I try to find middle ground between both people. But the first thing I tell every tenant is, if you want to stay, at your property and there's already a permit for a renovation. It's going to happen. This renovation is going to happen. You're going to have to leave. Likely. You still have the chance of fighting this when it goes to the board, but they'll fight you back and it won't stop until they get something. Right? Now, if this is the case and you want to exact your first rights of return, cool, do it. I can't stop you. It's your right to do that. We're not going to pretend that it isn't. But what's going to happen when you leave? Because now you don't have anywhere to go and you're going to be locked into a lease for a year. That new landlord's not going to let you out of it. This reno is going to take three to four months. It may take seven, but it's likely it's going to take four to five because we don't know what the contractors will say. And if that's the case and that property is ready to go and you're not available within that 30-day period, what's going to happen? You're going to lose it. So if you want to stay, stay. But let's work something out with this. Let's work something out with that. So there's a lot of things you can do, right? Because inherently speaking, the landlords do have a lot of control. They do, right? So... I'm just not in the mind of telling people like investors, just like things are getting, you know, like how to fix things. It's more in the sense of how to mediate things. You got to work with these tenants and how to deal with it. I had a client recently who I was talking to who owns like a significant amount of units. He's now just recently started to to deal with tenants more. He's paying out $30,000 per unit just to get them vacant. He doesn't care. Right. And before he would never give up that capital, but he's still able to. The big mindset change with investors, if you're doing cash for keys, it's 30,000 now. The minimum is like 10 grand at least. When I first started, it was like $2,000. Now it's 10 in certain areas. And now in higher areas, it's going to be 30, 40, 50. Things are, are getting more and more expensive as things go along, as inflation goes up. So getting yourself in the right mindset support. That could be like your renovation budget, essentially. I'm just not in the, I haven't done in the multi-family space. 
cap rates and stuff like that. But if we're talking about like residential properties, it's still based on market comparables. So like that really, if you're buying a tenanted property, you've got to be buying at about a 30 to 40 K discount per unit. If you're, if you're going to be dishing out that amount in cash for keys, like that. Yeah. Plus you got to adjust for the risk on top of that. Right. Like yeah. you got to have, yeah. remember I said, don't put yourself in dumb situations. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It. That totally makes sense. I find people buy these properties blindly without even looking at the demographic, right? Like how many times are you getting calls from people who probably are just like, yeah, I have a eight unit, six of them are ODSP. You really think they're going to move out? Probably not. They're barely making ends meet because food inflation has gone up and their insurance costs, their utilities have gone up. They are barely making rent payment. And if they're going to go double the rent elsewhere, not a chance, not a chance. They're not going to be able to survive, right? So to, to your point is doing that layer of due diligence and not being in that mindset of constantly having to buy something and just, you know, just hoping that things are going to be okay. I deal with this with some clients. Everyone wants top market dollar on rent. It's, it is what it is, right? Yeah. And then they want a tenant that's not going to give them shit in terms of problem. I've yeah. got tenants that I haven't jacked up the rent for at least three or four years. And I've deliberately kept them under market rents by a couple hundred dollars. Cause I'm like, these guys are no pain in my ass. Like they are perfectly fine. They will fix their own stuff and do their own shit and don't bother me on anything. Right. Of course I have some tenants. I aired it at like six, 700. Not, I'm not keeping those guys intentionally. I'm keeping them because I have to, but if the market rent is like $1,500, I'm happy to go with 1350. What is the right balance there? Cause I think sometimes like you need top rent, right. To be able to continue to buy today's rates. There's just a reality of it. And then for the most part, I also find like, if you get top rents, you're not going to get top quality tenants. Is there a middle spot? I, I realize you might not even have an answer to this question. Um, it's kind of just like, it is what it is, right? So you're asking me basically, what's the right balance? Because on one yeah. end, you've got under market rents, which you can only increase by 2% every single year. So you dig yourself deeper and deeper and deeper that way. On the other end, if you go for max rent, you're probably going to get a poor quality tenant. Which one's better? <laughs> I think I think like the bank, right? You have a low under market person right now and you're not increasing rent. Eventually, you'll, they'll become that renter that's at paying like the $900 rate because you never increased. You should always be increased at the, at the guideline. The guideline amount is not enough to run with a, with market rent. Like you're, you're only staving off that amount, right? So if you have a current market rent, like I hope market rent drops at some point for people, but it, it's just not, right? I hope the interest rates drop for the investors, but I don't think it will. So if that's the case, you should always be increasing your rent. And the balance usually that I see is that your higher premium luxury individual, your trade individual, that kind of thing, they are a nightmare when it comes to maintenance. Like they'll, they'll nitpick about things, right? The higher paying guys. The higher paying guys. If you take care of that stuff, they'll be the best tenants and they'll ignore you because they don't want to deal with it, right? The other ones, the, like the ones that are like ridiculously under market, they won't have any problems with you, but what they will do is they'll like, if they have an issue, it'll be like drugs, guns, like it's, it's just like, if things go get south really quick and if it's inconsistently in his rent, that kind of thing. Right. So there's still some people that are paying like $800, but they're on ODSP and they only get like five or a retired pension or whatever it is. They don't have enough. Right. There's also that kind of thing as well that you see, but it's usually non-payment of rent down there. And when you look at the, the rate. So the, the happy middle, I would say like, I actually agree with it. Probably about a hundred to hundred dollars under market, hundred yep. to two hundred dollars on the market is probably that sweet spot, but you should still be doing your increases of rent, the guideline amount, right? Cause you that, you're just like, the gap is just getting bigger and bigger every single year. So you do yeah. want to chase it kind of so not, so it gets like too bad, but yeah, no, that's, that's what I would suggest like at, at that point. And yeah, the big thing is just looking at someone's like the person itself and screening them appropriately. Yeah, no, I always, I always give people the example. Like, look, me and my wife were tenants downtown for a while. I didn't care if it had a quartz backsplash. Like, I just didn't care, right? The reality is, like, we are tenants. We're going to be here for a few years. And, like, what difference does it make to me if there's a pool in this condo or if there isn't, right? And so the reality is what I wanted was a good deal, right? So I tell people, like, most people that are tenants for a few years realize that, you know, they're, they're top-notch tenants, good income, good credit, good whatever. And they just want to be, they just want to get a good deal, right? That's, that's been my logic and that's what I've implied, but I don't know. We'll, we'll kind of see how that plays out. Also, I'll give it back to you with your question, man. <laughs> yeah, all good. Um, actually, I remember my, my question was more so a comment. So 
we're, we're jumping a little bit all over the place, but I like a point that, that you mentioned, Andrew, about the, um, about like the N13 and being able to negotiate that and use that as a leverage point. Cause a lot of people will look at the N13 as something that works against them. But if you know the laws, if you know the rules, if you know the regulations, the way that you phrase it, right? It's like, because you know the laws very well, you know that if they sign a one-year lease, they're going to have to pay that entire one-year lease, right? Unless the landlord lets them break it for whatever reason. But you're not able to negotiate these things and figure out creative solutions if you don't even know what you're negotiating, yeah. right? So you need to be familiar with these sort of laws. And I found that when I started familiarizing myself, because to be honest with you, I was one of those guys where it's like outsource everything. And that includes anything LTB related. But then in Ontario, you got to realize that's the biggest risk that's going to take you out of the game in real estate. So yes, you outsource it but you need to be familiar with it. You don't need to be an expert at it, but you need to know it, right? And okay. that's helped me shift my sort of creativity when it comes to negotiating with tenants. It was not a question. It was a comment to, to what you made there. And that doesn't get talked about enough. Oh yeah, it's very true. Like you, like an investor needs to know the biggest, like the big thing is what, what I have to do. And it's, it's my, my office sort of, let's say dogma. Um, and the, the Bible inside of the office is that when you have an N12 or N13, the investor is nowhere near that file at all. You don't talk. You don't call the tenant. You don't meet with the tenant. You don't message the tenant. I don't want to hear that you talk to them after I didn't know about it. Whole thing. Because the biggest threat to N13 and N12 is the landlord. Because the landlord didn't know a lot. That's it. I had to, I have, like, even if I'm dealing with a 200 unit investor, I got to pretend that he is a fool and he doesn't know what he's talking about. Because I've, I've had like, entire matters. I've waited eight, nine months. The landlord says something. Whole thing just falls apart. And he just says something like innocuous, like, hey, you know what? Why don't we talk about the rent? Instead of like me doing this N12, let's talk about the rent. Maybe I can increase the rent. N12, done. That's it. Gone. Right? Because the affidavit says that you're moving in and now you lied. And he, he didn't mean anything about it. He was innocuous about it. He just, you know, he's just trying to see if he can find a solution. But because he said that statement, it was enough to sink the entire pot. So why risk six months of weight and legal work by just talking to the tenants? Because if you know what you're talking about, be fine, right? But it's, it's not like an incredible, uh, difficult uh, subject to learn. It's, it's pretty simple, but people, they just don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, fair enough, fair enough. On that topic, like what, what's the biggest mistakes that you're seeing people do? Because I think we talked about the issues that we're seeing with the LTB, what the biggest risks are on that side, what people can do properly to kind of start remediating it. But where are you seeing the most, like, I guess, let's say someone's coming with you for a file. It's like, where did <laughs> they screw up? <laughs> oh yeah. People like people tell the tenant what they're doing and they'll say like, unless we do this, like this is the bad thing when it comes to bad negotiation. If you don't do this or you don't sign this document or if we don't come to an agreement, then I'll have to do this. Oh my God. It drives me insane. If you, like, if we don't talk about the rent, I will have to move in. Don't say that. If, uh, you know, if, if the, the interest rates just went up, I can't afford this place anymore. If we don't increase the rent, I'll sell it. Don't do that. Just sell it if you're going to sell it or have a conversation about the rent. But don't talk about the two in the same because it's coercion where you're trying to threaten the tenant to, to something. I don't, like when I deal with something like this, I don't like sell sunshines and roses and I also don't lie to a tenant. But I also don't like telegraph. I don't like pretend that I'm going to do something. Maybe if I do it, I'm just, I tell them I'm going to do it. I'm doing it right now. Here's what we can do to stop it. Or I'm doing this right now and let me know if you want to deal with this afterwards. Bye. I'll leave it to them, right? If the client's planning on selling the property, just sell the property. Don't negotiate about selling the property. Don't negotiate about, you know, when are you going to leave? How are you going to leave? I'll serve the application, file it, send it, and then I'll have a conversation after. Because I don't care what they have to say. I have care what they have to say after they get the application. How are you supposed to go about a cash for keys discussion? You don't have a cash for keys discussion before you file something. Because you already know you're going to file an application. You have it afterwards. That's why I hate the term cash for keys because it doesn't exist. If you came to a tenant and said, you know, how much would it cost for you to leave? You should get a number about $100,000. That's what it's worth. You haven't done anything, right? Why would you try to sell something that someone doesn't need? If, if you try to get me to buy a car right now when I don't want, it's going to cost you $100,000 because I don't want one. I don't want to take the liability of a new car. But an investor will do that and think, why would this person think this one? You have nothing to offer them. They're not being evicted yet. What I do 
is I send the application. I do everything. They understand them leaving is non-negotiable. That's it. Mm. It's happening. Landlords don't negotiate. They dictate, right? So when it comes to this particular area, it's like if you have an N12, if you're selling or someone's moving in because you know what's happening, serve, file. Put some weight in what you're actually saying because you shouldn't be threatening people doing that kind of stuff. Just do it, right? And that's what that's the big thing that people never listen to me about. They'll say, well, I'll talk to the tenant because I have a good relationship. That, that, that tenant doesn't give a shit about you. They don't care, right? As soon as you, you tell them that you're doing something, they're going to okay. immediately turn into business mode. And then that's where landlords get shocked. They'll go, I was so nice. I sent them a gift on Christmas and I didn't increase their rent. And I was like, that's your fault. They never asked to be your friend. My tenants don't know who I am, right? They know my name. They know what I do. They know a PO box. That's it. I don't, they don't know, you know, that I like Downton Abbey. They don't know what I like on my Starbucks drink. They don't, they don't know anything about, me, right? That's the way it should be. I'm professional with them. I don't mistreat them, but they don't know me because I'm not their friend, Right. And these landlords will do this. These investors will do this. They'll try to keep a good relationship with their tenants. It's like, no, keep a professional relationship with your tenants. You serve, you file. Afterwards, then you can have a discussion. Hey, you've got this N12. I've served you. I filed you. I've got the one month's worth of compensation I've given to you. The baseline we need to talk about is that the one month's worth of compensation. How do I give you this check? Can I e-transfer it to you? Can I mail it to you? What do you want to do? And the first thing they'll say is, you're, you're evicting me. Like, what do I do? Like, I don't want the money. It's like, no, no, no. I have to give you the money. So even if you don't accept it, I'm going to place it inside your, your mailbox. Now, if you want to fight it, you can. We can go to the landlord tenant board where I can make a case for you to be evicted from the property due to a sale, right? Or me moving it, whichever it is. Do you want to discuss before we go to a hearing if you want to leave on your own terms? Now's the time to ask. You don't need to tell me right now. Think about it. If you want to leave earlier, if you want to leave at a certain period and not take the risk for going for a hearing, just let me know. Have a good day. Click. That's it. I leave it to that. Whatever you want to come up with. If And when they'll, sometimes they'll come up with $20,000. I'll just say, no. No, it's not worth that. Because I filed. I've got the thing. You're worth, like you were supposed to get one month's worth of rent, which I did. He said, well, it's going to take you six months. Absolutely. Well, it's taking me six months. That's the way it's going to be. And that's it. Do you need help for moving boxes? Do you need help for this? It's worth to me if you leave four months now and I pay for your moving boxes, I pay for your fees, I, you can leave in four months. But if you want to just say, because if it's going to take me eight to 10 months, 12 months, whatever it is, I should pay you 20 grand. The answer is no. When you do, you do your way you're supposed to, it takes all that power, the tenant away, right? Like, Which it's supposed to be in the first place because the reason why you give them one month's worth of rent is what is what they're entitled to right? If you walk in for just cash for keys with no application, that's on you. You do that to yourself. That's, that's all it is. So yeah, I mean, that's the powers in the tenant. If you walk up, just ask to sell them something. And it's, like, it's the same thing with anybody, right? But people think the laws are not in their favor or whatever. It's like, no, the N12 is hilariously in the landlord's favor. Hilariously so. And it's like, they'll, they'll still negotiate. It's like, it's like these things where these like real estate agents, they'll say like, three months worth of closing, two months worth of closing, tenants in there. And it's like, I get these deals. I look them over every day and I just go, why? Why did you think this would work? Did you talk to the tenant yet? No. Did you serve the tenant yet? No. It's like, cool. That's great. Like, this is going to be really good for you and your insurance. And it's because they do these things. And it's like, you know, you just try to, again, people don't consult. They'll get themselves into stupid situations. That's what will happen. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think my, you can probably attest to this as well. We see that very often people buy before they think, before they have a game plan. That's why in the podcast, we mentioned in a couple episodes, when I do multifamily, I put a condition in there that allows me to negotiate prior to going firm on the deal because I need to have some sort of comfort in seeing if I'm able to negotiate and get the tenants out prior to closing. Because if not, and all of them do intend to stay, if it's a multifamily property and there's no there's no uh, avenue of an N13 because the property's in decent shape, which a lot of investors buy properties that are not distressed and it's fully tenanted. Tenants are paying rent on time. Your hands are pretty tied at that point, right? Yeah, you're, um, yeah. So you got to do these things prior as part of the due diligence prior to closing, ideally. And it's next to, imp- it's not impossible, but probably close to impossible during the bull market. But now there's so many opportunity to do that because multis are just sitting there so you could put these flexible terms in your contract to better negate your risk and seeing 
if by closing your, there's a good likelihood that a couple of tenants would be gone, right? Yeah. Also, I just wanted to quickly touch on, like, this is the last question on my end is penalties, right? Because there are things that landlords do that are not on side with the LTV. And look, I don't encourage anyone to, to break the law, operate within the rules of the game. So bad faith uh, addictions through an N12 is a very common one, right? Mm-hmm. And it's probably increasing, yeah. Uh, yeah. right? So that's a common one. Another one is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, landlords renegotiating with tenants to increase their rent and, right. and getting them to sign a lease. And that tenant can go back and say, hey, 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 you could technically only increase it by whatever, the 2%, whatever yeah. the guideline. Yeah. Like, what are the common things that our people are doing there that are incorrect? And what are the potential penalties of landlord going through those avenues? Uh, it's like your, your flavor of like 50 shades of gray. <laughs> like what, how bad is it going to get? Right. But the biggest one, like first of all, I'll touch on is the N12, right? Like the either non-payment, like the move-in or the, you know, the sale. You know, I, I, out of all the defense that we do for landlords, that's probably going to be one of the highest ones, right? And it's from innocuous stuff. Like they'll say they're moving in and then seven months down the line, they'll, they'll sell it because they got broke. They only went broke, right? Like a lot of my investors will deal with that. Like they'll buy a property, rent it, rent it, rent it. They can't afford it. Interest rates went too high. They sold their current property, moved into the other one. And then eight months down the line, they still couldn't afford the interest rate. They'll sell it and then they'll get sued. Right? Yeah. You're going to get, so you're going to hit with something. It's the way the law is. What are the penalties for something like that? What's the max it can go up to for an individual and a corp? Everyone sees the fines, right? Everyone talks about the 150,000, 200,000, $300,000 fines, $60,000 fines. That doesn't happen often. It's really rare. If you are stuck in a financial situation, and you do something against the RTA, remember, the RTA is not punitive. The landlord-tenant board is not punitive. It's not, right? Those fines don't go to the tenant. It goes to the board. It's not punitive. It's restorative. Your actual threat is damages. What was the tenant damaged? How much rent did they increase in payment and rent? If they, if they get that, right? In the scenario that I provided, how much was moving costs for them? All those things. That's what you're actually look at, looking at. So, and, and most practical situations, your cap is at $35,000. That's what your cap is, right? If you got a 120 unit property, you're trying to get to the higher ROI, you lie about N13s, you lie on your contract report, you lie on, on your permits, you do all these things to increase the rent and then people leave, then you don't let them back in. Yeah, you're, you're kind of, and, and it's also severity, right? Did you shut off the water? Did you shut off the heat? Like, what did you do exactly? How big was it? Like, was it in the newspaper? Was it on the list? Then you start to see the board get real interest, right? And because they want to penalize the corp. They want to penalize the landlord. That's when you start to see it. But 90% of people do a first-time offense. They don't get anything. They don't have anything. They just get damages rewarded against them. It's a civil action. So people still have to enforce it. That's the big thing people don't understand. If you have damage against a tenant, tenant still has to enforce, enforce the actual order. With some investors, it's a big deal because they have things in their personal name right? They have another income property, whatever it is, but people in corpse. Yeah, man, there's a lot of investors that don't pay off these, these damages because it's a civil action. So you have to go through the small claims court. You have to go and do a garnishment. You have to go and do a you know, rid of seizure of sales, a lot of things. And it's expensive, right? So the same things you got to do to a tenant to recover rent, yeah. that tenant has to run through the same hurdle. I recovered quite a bit of funds from our clients in the past couple of months. Like I just recovered like 22,000 last month. And I recovered like 30,000 this month, that kind of thing from tenants. And it's bloody well hard, man. Notice I said how much I got. I didn't tell you how long it took me. The one from 30,000, that took me three years to get, <laughs> right? So, and it cost the client like six grand, yeah. right? So it's like, it, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. So there's a lot of people that don't understand that. So a lot of investors don't get that. Like the same reason you, you don't want to go after the rent is the same reason they're not going to come after you. So that's also something to consider as well. Not that I'm trying to coach you into breaking the law because that's not what I'm doing. Can we talk a little bit about that collection process? I, I know we're running out of time here, but I, I think this is important for everyone because most people at some point will deal with non-payment of rent if you have no units and tenants and so on. So you get the LTV order, uh, which will say, you know, you have to pay X amount of dollars on X amount of days and here's your payment plan or whatever, unless you've already negotiated one, right? And then they, they eventually at some point stop paying and then they just kind of leave on their own. And then now you're stuck with an LTB order that says you are entitled to my personal situation happened a couple of years ago, $15,000. I 
the guy up and just left because he, he missed the payment in, on June 15th. And so he left before June 30th. Left my place in a complete mess, right? But I didn't know where he moved to, right? And I wasn't about to go to small claims court when I can't even serve the guy. Um, yeah. What are the next steps? How do you go about actually getting that money back? Okay. Your best ability of getting that money back is actually before that step. Way back at the beginning when you got the tenant, driver's license, make a model of their car, and a photo of the license plate. If you can't get their ID, get a photo of the license plate and then make a model of the car. Get something, right? When you take your first rent deposit, take a photo of the check. Do not take a money order. Do not take a cash order or that kind of thing. Get a check, get a certified check. And then that bottom, those bottom number is the routing number and transit number of the bank. And I can garnish the bank. With your name and the driver's list, I got the date of birth, et cetera. I got the code. I can go ahead and search him a couple of years. I can find him. So that's your biggest thing. And doing a garnishment on their employer. You know, if you don't have the employer, you can garnish the account, your bank account, right? Whatever that is. You have those two options. If you don't know anything about them, but you know where they are, you could do a debtor's examination. Debtor's examination is you give them a sheet. How much do you pay for all utilities? How much do you pay for your rent? How much do you pay for all this other stuff? And they have to tell you where they work. They have to tell you and disclose if they have any bank accounts. And their taxes, all these things. Now you can go through their finances. If they are a person that works and has money, you can garnish them. But because you sucked and you didn't get the information and you didn't get the personal information, I can't do nothing. That's it. If you have a driver's license, okay, because I think I have some of this stuff and I've got like unpaid rent. Well, no, I, like, I honestly love this because I'm going to be in this situation. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, now kind of like payday, okay? So hold on. If you have a driver's license, I don't have a picture of the car, but they also, I'm sure, change your car. I have a picture of a draft check. Um, that they kind of just gave me for one of the rent payments. Um, I don't know where they're currently located. Can you still somehow get the money? If you have the orders, yeah. The orders don't expire when it comes to recovery. It does not expire? The orders expires for enforcement for like the eviction, six months. Yeah, right? But for the money? No. Oh, shit. Like PD, Austin? The big thing is here is like, people give up. I feel give up all the time. Yeah. If you could talk, like I was in, I was in like garnishment. I was doing a garnishment hearing. I was talking to a justice. I won't say his name, but he's a public employee. But I won't say his name. He went 80% of garnishment orders. Don't get, don't actually get money. They don't recover any funds. Right. And 80% of that is because people just give up. That's it. And it's like, you could have continued, but you didn't. Yes, I understand legal fees and all that stuff, but you could have just continued and you would have gotten it back. It's about time. People don't want to invest the time, right? So I tell my clients when they deal with me forever in a day, don't call me. Don't message me. Don't like nothing for your garnishment. Oh no, don't like call me in a year. That's it. And then they don't have their hopes up, right? I make it very clear in the beginning, like I'll get you this money if I best I can, but forever in a day, don't call me. Call me in a year, once a year, that's it. And I'll continue to be looking for this tenant I'll hire a private investigator. We'll keep searching, keep getting, we'll eventually find something. Kill them. They'll make a mistake. They'll post something on Pinterest. They'll like, I just found someone a couple of days ago by inquiring to buy Magic the Gathering cards. That's how I found him. Found his address. What? Yeah. He was was selling Magic the Gathering cards. He owed my client $42,000. So we were enforcing on the garnishment and, you know, I had to serve him with the garnishment, try to do a debtor's examination. Didn't know where he was. So he was like, hey, I was telling him, how do I give you the money for these cards? I want to come purchase them. He's like, yeah, I don't know where we can meet. Do you want to meet at a park? I was like, um, no, how about I meet you in the day? He's like, well, I'll be at work. I was like, I'll come to your work. Where do you work? Got exactly where you work. Gave me the address where it was. And I was like, cool. Wrote down the address, wrote down where he was, and then went straight there. I was like, hey, you're Steven? Yeah, here you go. Here's your garnishment. Walked right around to his boss. Here's the garnishment order. That's it. You owe my, you owe my client $44,000 in back rent. Bye. Walked out. Um, Within a week, there was funds already being transferred into our, into the, uh, the accounts for the, the, the courts. That's it. Hmm. Right. So people give up. At what point is it worth going through that? If it's like just 5,000 bucks, is it even worth going down that process? No. Just no, it's, take it at the sunk cost and move on. Yeah. Because like it pre and post interest. Yeah. You'll get some, but it's kind of a sunk cost. Once you get to like seven to $8,000, it's worth it. Interesting. It's worth it. The private okay. investigator costs like 500 bucks, 400 bucks. And then the garnish will cost, even with a practitioner, like 625, 650. 
So yeah. like in total, some garnishment can be like, I've never seen a garnishment in my office go above three grand. I've never, I've just never had it. Right. So I usually like, I'll kind of cut things off at that point, but um, three grand. Yeah. Interesting. 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 Yeah. <laughs> All right, Andrew, I think that was a great episode. Me and Austin learned a lot. I learned a lot. Austin, I know those are the stuff a lot more, but so here we ask our guests two questions at the end of the podcast. The first question is what's the main piece of advice that you'd leave a newer investor with in today's market? Who always talk to a paralegal, even just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That, that works. Uh, and, and the second question is, I guess for yourself, your business, your investing, how do you see things growing or changing in the next couple of years? Capacity, man. The biggest issue I have with my business right now is capacity. I just need more. I need more associates. We need more staffing. We need more everything. Cause like, like uh, Austin was saying, there's just a lot right now. And the biggest criticism I get is I'm too busy. So that's what I'm doing in my industry right now is growing, trying to figure out how to grow even more. Short and sweet. I love it, Andrew. Honestly, it's, uh, yeah, this was a very fascinating conversation and I'm sure we could have went another few hours. <laughs> I'm sure the guests are going to want you back. I definitely want you back because I, I haven't had all my questions answered here. But uh, for anyone who wants to connect with you, uh, maybe work with your firm, um, how could they best get in contact with you? Well, you can call our office line at 289-339-1311. And you can speak with our lovely assistant, Abigail, or our other lovely Lily. And they will absolutely either put you into touch with myself or they'll push you in touch with my partners, Glenn and uh, Angela Smith. And uh, yeah, like if there's, uh, if there's ever something that's needed assistance, we're more than happy to help. Awesome. And just as a prerequisite, guys, here's some homework for you. Learn how to draft an N4 before yeah. you give it to the office. Bloody well, please. <laughs> no joke. Yeah. No joke. Anyways, really appreciate you jumping on again. Fantastic episode. If you guys enjoyed this, make sure to like, share it with a friend. Uh, leave us a five-star review. It helps bring great guests like Andrew on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.